There is a psychological syndrome called the imposter syndrome. There are many in my generation, that would be those who are roughly about age 37 to about 42, who experience this. <clears throat> it does not matter what they've accomplished, what they've done, what they are good at, what they really are gifted at. They never feel good enough. They always feel like an imposter. I remember talking to some of you over the years about this. How easy it is to feel like you are not measuring up. How easy it is to seem like there's a standard here and we're living here. So whether you experience imposter syndrome or not, um, we often can feel that way. Some of us, even while building businesses, planting churches, and any number of accomplishments like raising family, growing friendships, can often feel like they just don't measure up. For some of us, though, not experiencing that, we may experience just this feeling that, that we are not what we are supposed to be. That we are not who we are supposed to be. And the passage today is going to address this very thought. I want to invite you to go to Galatians chapter 4. and We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Let me just tell you, this, this passage is one that I would recommend remembering, I'd recommend memorizing, I would recommend making it a part of you, especially if you're someone who struggles to see yourself for what you should be, rather than what you are. Let me read verses 1 through 7 for us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now really quick, landing the context of this, because it's the beginning of a thought, it's following through on what we've been looking at for a while. You just see these first two words when he says, I mean, right? That means he's, he's going back to what he's just been talking about. Those things that I preached on two weeks ago and that Scott brought us through last week. Two weeks ago as we looked at the purpose of the law, the fulfillment of the law, landing in Christ, 
through whom the law is meant to point us to because there is no other salvation but Christ. And then last week as Scott talked to us about the, the wonder and the beauty of being united together as a, as a people and, and so much so that, that to be a man or a woman, to be a slave or free, to be a Jew or Greek, none of those things matter in the purpose of God. And then he says, I mean. He's, he's expanding on those beautiful things we've been talking about for a couple weeks now. What does it mean to be an heir? If you go back to uh, verse 29, this is where Scott ended. He said, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Now that promise is the promise that comes through Abraham, to all who would be of faith. My prayer is that that would be every one of us. And by that, every single one of us would also be heirs of the promise. Heirs of the promise. And we're going to look at what that means. We're picking up on those themes that we saw a couple weeks ago of the law being a guardian. Carrying forth, protecting the child as it matures. And what Scott truly highlighted last week for us, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? That if we are in Christ, we are heirs. We are heirs. And we're going to see that play through. There are themes here, church, I, I just can't even tell you how wonderful this passage is. I can't. I don't think I will be adequate today to tell you how wonderful this is, especially for those of us who ever feel like we are frustrated in our faith and do not make it to where we're supposed to be. What we see first is of our old lives. And let me just say this, if you are in Christ, then this is your old life. The implication being you have a new life that's different than this. What that means is that if you get stuck somewhere in this old life stuff we're about to talk about, there's a problem. Because that's supposed to be an old life and not the new life. We see three words that are highlighted through these first three verses. Let me read them again for us. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Three words, church. The first is heir. Verse 1. Of course, this goes back to verse 29. We just showed that. The heir is the owner of everything. We're told that. The ESV reads owner of everything. Philip Ryken, a, a commentator, writes that a, a better phrasing for this would be Lord of all. I want you to pause on that for just a minute. Because if you are an heir in Christ, then you are not only the owner of everything, but you are... Lord of all. And that should stun us as Christians who worship the Lord of all, right? 
If you're the Lord of all and He's the Lord of all, it's because everything we have comes from Him. And nothing that we have doesn't. Heirs, according to the promise to be the owner of everything. The Lord of all. I, I get floored as I read this. I get floored as I read this and I think about how sometimes I see myself as a failure. And sometimes I know my failure. And when I interact with some of you and I know the struggles that you face, how stuck you can sometimes be, how frustrated you sometimes are in your faith. And what the scripture tells us right here is that we are the Lord of everything. In Him. Hear this. In Him. We're not God. Right? He's God. We're not God. But in Him, we are heirs of everything. He owns everything. We have everything. What is everything? Everything is everything in the Bible, guys. We are heirs. We are heirs. This is where this starts. Heirs according to the promise. That promise comes through faith from God Himself. Passed down through all the generations. All who are of faith, we've been reading this in Galatians chapter 3, are heirs of the promise. We are that. Hear the, the present tense of that, church. It is not that we will be. It's not that we will be. It is that we are. The trouble is, is that that's not where our passage ends. And we look at our old lives, and here's what we see. Not only are we heirs, but we're children. Not only are we heirs, but we are children. Verse 2, we read that this child is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, in the Bible, it is a good thing to be a child, right? Jesus tells us to act like children, that we should be like little children in our faith and understanding of God. Here, it's not a good thing. Here, it, it, it's the same thing that would be, be used as we saw just a few verses ago in chapter 3 with guardians watching over and protecting and keeping control of. So while we have been heirs, lords of everything, given the gifts of all things, we have under the law, under our old lives, been controlled, not free. This is frustrating. This is frustrating. When you start to recognize who you are in Christ as an heir, and then you suddenly realize there's all these restrictions and all these controls, and how do I live out what I am? He says that we are like children under guardians and managers. These are under trustees. These are, the money's being managed, right? The, the rules are being set. The, 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 the guidance is, is there. But not only are we heirs who are children, but because of that, Paul says, and he expands on this, and he says we are like slaves. Now, I'm going to make a guess that in our current culture, it is politically incorrect to refer to that for any of us. But this is what the truth says. This is what the Bible says we are or have been. That we are no different from slaves in the same way that a, that a slave is controlled by a master, is guarded and guided and forced into certain roles. And so too as children are we. 
We are heirs who are children who are slaves. Now, what he says here, and I just want to highlight this, in verse 3, he says, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? The elementary principles of the world. The, the word here basically means the ABCs. It means the most basic. The building blocks that all else is built out of. In, in a modern sense, you can actually picture a nursery or a kid's classroom. We were enslaved to those foundational principles. For the Jew, that's the law. And it's the things that lead up to the law and the things that lead out of the law. It is the foundation that they had. Now in the next verse, starting in verse 8, he readdresses this. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but he says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are, are nature, that by nature sorry, are not gods. But now you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you be, turn back to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world? So whether a Jew enslaved to the basics of the law, or whether a, a Gentile who is enslaved to the basics of the world, we are enslaved. We are enslaved. And we saw this back in chapter 3. When he said, verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then he expands on that further, and he says in verse 24, so then the law was guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The purpose of the law was to get us to that point. But here what we see is, is that we are enslaved to it. And, and Paul is making this case. He's looking at the Gentile Christians who have exchanged Jesus only for Jesus plus circumcision and other aspects of the law. And he's saying, look, we were enslaved to that before. Why would you re-enslave yourself to it now when what we have is the best? We have Christ. So what Paul is doing in all of this in verses 1 through 3 is explaining to us the human situation. Whether Jew or Greek, we were slaves to something. The case can be made to the law and to other things. That's for another day. The point that he's making is that as slaves, we are in a dire situation. And might I just simply say, a frustrating one. And every one of us knows what it's like to be in Christ. Actually, let me say this. If you don't know what it's like to be in Christ and then find yourself frustrated because you recognize what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to be, but you don't make it. Some of us, if you haven't ever experienced that, it's probably because you're not saved. But to know what you're supposed to be and do and, and not get there, this is frustrating. This is to be an heir, the owner of everything, Lord of all, and yet unable, unable. I found in my own faith, 
and I know from experience talking to many of you, in those moments of feeling frustrated in our faith, it is because we know that we've been given the keys to the kingdom of God. And we can't even figure out how to start the car. We can't even unlock the door to the house. Church, the reason for this, and he's going to tell us this, is because we have not yet reached the day of maturity. Look at verse 2. It says, but he is under guardians and managers until when? Until the date set by his father. Until the date set by his father. Go back with me to verse 19 of chapter 3. I'm glad I preached that passage because it makes me really familiar to jump back and forth between these. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Church, we learned a couple weeks ago that that was Jesus. So until Jesus came, the law was waiting for that. The purpose of the law was waiting for Jesus to come. Here in chapter 4 we read that it is the date set by the Father. And of course we should be thinking about the date set by our sovereign God for the perfect time for Jesus to come. I said a couple weeks ago that one of the purposes of the law was to protect us and guard us until when? If you were here, until we were mature in our faith and understanding that we could freely be in Christ. The day that, that the Father would set for His Son in this culture with trustees and guardians and all those around was the day the Father knew that Son would be mature enough to handle life on His own. That's the day that the Father has set. It is the day of maturity. The trouble is, we go back to the Galatian Christians, they are holding on to their immaturity. And in doing so, everything that they've, been, that they've inherited is waiting for them. See, they're holding on to the immaturity of the law. While the maturity would drive them to freedom, they're still holding on to the immaturity. It's like a toddler clinging to a stuffed animal or a security blanket. Sometimes as an adult in faith, I feel like I'm doing that. I'm just holding on. They're holding on to the immaturity. Church, do we do the same thing? Do we hold on to our immaturity instead of embracing the maturity of the day of Christ's freedom in our lives? Apostle Paul talked a lot about maturity. So did other biblical writers. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Even those in the New Testament church couldn't get this right. Even they who, who had been given what they needed, they were still living on milk when steak was being offered to them. But they can't chew the steak because they're not practiced enough to. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. 
He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. Church, some of us are drinking out of babies' bottles when we should be eating steak dinners. Are we mature in Christ? Has the day of maturity come for us? Has it come for you? Have you moved from the milk, and hear this, the milk of the gospel to the solid food of the gospel? Because you never outgrow the gospel. Right? We come to the gospel for salvation. We come to the gospel for sanctification. But the food should change. What we need should change after 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 60 years in the faith. That we would move from immaturity, unlike the Galatians who are still holding on to theirs, that we would move to maturity. Now, we don't do that alone. This is the good news. In the second half of our passage, we're going to see what God does. See, God responds to the immaturity that we have, whether it was Israel's immaturity in the law for all those years, I think God still responds to our immaturity even now. And let's see what this looks like. Now, as we've been reading this passage so far, I've been applying it to you and to me. To really get this next section, we need to apply it to the we of Paul and his people, the nation of Israel. Let us read this in light of that, right? We're not so much thinking about you and me, but about the we of Israel. He writes this, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want to start with the win of God's work. The win of God's work. Now we learn in chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, that the purpose of the law was to imprison, to guard. It was to keep us safe until maturity until the offspring of God should come. What plays out for us as believers with the law, showing us, teaching us our sin, showing us that we cannot save ourselves, but we must rely on faith in Jesus. The law protecting us until we reach maturity. So too, the law played the same role as it does for us in our small picture lives, in the big picture of ancient Israel and all the way through. The law played that role for the nation of Israel of protector and guard and guardian of Israel for 1,300-ish years. And then we read in verse 4, according to Paul, according to the word of God, but when the fullness of time had come. I love this phrase. When the fullness of time had come. 
This is one of the most complex, I think, and beautiful terms in the Bible. If you're someone who struggles with the sovereignty of God and whether or not God is in control, then you may not like this term. But if you are like me and you love that God is in control of all things, good and bad, then you will love this. Because when it tells us that, it's, it, it's sort of a never-ending. This is a huge phrase. The fullness of time. That's the moment that Jesus came. Was the moment when, when all the time was full. When it was pregnant. When it was ripe. The right time in history is when Jesus came. And historians, if you love history, and I'm not a great student of history, but some of you are. If you read historians' view of this and, and how the church arose out of the time period it did, they will tell you. Men and women, historians far smarter than I, will, will trace through all the details of history and show you how at the exact moment that Jesus came was the first time in the history of the world that the movement of Jesus would spread the way it did or could in any way. What you look at and what they talk about is the common language that existed in that time period at that time for the first time in human history. As the Greek language had run the course of most of the world through the conquests of Alexander the Great. Then Rome took over and, and Rome built on the, the Greek language of the everyday people but they didn't stop there. They began building roads to every known city in the world. And so for the first time in history, the men and women who followed Christ could put their shoes on and walk down the road and tell somebody about Jesus thousands of miles away in a language they all understood. There are so many details, so many bits and pieces as you trace through the history, the exact time, not only that, but what would come out of that, the movements that would come, the technology increases that happened that would allow the church to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's amazing. But not only in history was this the fullness of time, but this was the fullness of time for salvation as well. This was the time when the nation of Israel was ripe and ready to hear of their Savior and begin following Jesus. Not only that, this was a time spiritually in the world where paganism was already taking a nosedive off the cliff. Where people in general weren't satisfied in the answers of Greek gods and, and mythology. When it wasn't lining up and suddenly the news of Jesus hits the streets and people just are like, wow, this is the news we've been waiting for, both Jew and Gentile. When we talk about the fullness of time, we, we look at a sovereign God who's in control of everything. And ordains it. Jesus, in Mark 1, 14-15, said this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is now. I love that this happens in the immediate after the words of 
John getting arrested. Because God's in control of that too. Church, when the Bible talks about the fullness of time, we're talking about a sovereign God who loves all of us, who cares for us, and is powerful enough to move and and ordain everything that happens. Nothing is out of control. And the reality is we look at the big picture of the fullness of time, and then we take that big picture and we look at your story, and we look at my story, and suddenly we realize that, that God not only works in the world in the fullness of time, but also in our lives. You think upon the moment of your salvation, that you came to Christ, what you were going through, and how he used what you were going through in that moment to show you how good and awesome and wonderful he is. And to believe that salvation. I look back at my story and I see this moment that led to this moment that led to this moment that that led to this moment. And every one of those was the fullness of time to that moment when Christ put faith in my heart and in my life and I believed. And I know that's your story too. If you're in Him. The fullness of time. That is when Christ showed up. Let me just tell you, if if you have not experienced that, if you have not come to understand the fullness of time in your own salvation, that, that Christ has moved one piece to another to another, then maybe, just maybe the fullness of time is this moment right now for you. And you haven't yet been in the fullness of time for your personal salvation story. But you are here today. But you are here today. He knows what he's doing. And he has led you to this place today for that purpose. And every one of us should be able to say the same thing. We look at the the when, the fullness of time that Christ came, and then we look at the what of the fullness of time. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. What did he do? God sent forth his son. I just love that phrase, sent forth. We don't really talk that way anymore. Right? I I send something, but I don't send forth something. But God sends forth his son. There's purpose. It's deliberate. The sun goes out with purpose. Verse 4, born of woman, born under the law. The first bit of that, born of woman. What does that mean? That's just, I mean, we're all born of women, right? Well, Psalm 51, verse 5, tells us what that means. In David's great prayer of confession, he says this to the Lord. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's a song that we sing here at Calvary that that I I love that speaks to my heart all the time that, that uses those exact words. What that is teaching is that we are born sinful. And by the way, that's not our mom's fault. This is not a special indictment against women. Now I will tell you there are those who teach that it is. They're called Gnostics. 
feminism, feminists tend to love them. I, I haven't figured out why, because they just don't get it. This is not an indictment against women. This is the human condition. And here's what this is saying when it says it here, that we are all born sinful. But it says here that Jesus was born that way. Now we know Jesus was not born in sin, but what is he? He's born in the same circumstances that we are. This is an affirmation that from the first moments that we are under the curse of sin and death. And so too, and hear this for Jesus, this is an affirmation that he was born under the curse of sin and death. Right after this, it says that we we're born He was born under the law. He was born under the law, willingly putting himself under the law so that he could redeem those who were enslaved by it. Now, big pause on this. Big, huge pause on this. Because if he's born into this situation, then just think about this. The son, who for all eternity has experienced nothing but freedom as the perfect example of being mature in God, willingly takes on the status of an heir, a child, and a slave for us. We don't think about Christ's eternality very often, but one of the things we need to know is that for all of existence, and that's pre-time, post-time, and and outside of time, the Son has been what the Son is. Free, full of life. And yet for you and I, in the incarnation, he is born under the law, under the curse. Not above it, under the curse. And it leads to what? It leads to his death. Because that's where the curse leads for all of us. He willingly takes on the status of an heir, a child, and a slave. All the power in the universe to do whatever it is that he wants to do, and he restricts his own use of that power, and he humbles himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Coming as a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. Why? Because he went under the law to rescue us who were under the law. This is not idle words here when it talks about the point of death even death on the cross to die on a cross in jewish law was a curse to die on a tree was a curse and he took that upon himself why he took that upon himself so that we could be free so that we who are heirs Children, slaves, could become sons of God. Church, we've looked at the, at the how, or the, the when. We've, we've looked at the, the what. Let us look at the why 
as we look at these two phrases in verse 5. The first, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Church, he did that so that we could be redeemed. And this is a powerful word, especially in the context here. We throw out the word redemption all the time. But to be redeemed was literally the, the, the act of buying a slave out of slavery. And how did Christ do that? He did that with his own blood. This ties to one of my favorite biblical words, the word tetelestai, which means it is finished. It's the, the cry that Jesus made from the cross as he breathed his last, which also means to be paid in full. He died so that we could be redeemed, bought out of slavery. Why? And, and here's where all this lands in verse 5, so that we could be adopted. So that we could be adopted as sons. Now let me tell you, Jewish culture didn't actually have very much room for adoption. Didn't make any sense in their culture for some reason. You do see the theme of it flow throughout scripture because God is the great adopter of sinners. As he adopts the nation of Israel to be his own, to be his children, we too in Christ are adopted But for Paul, he was in Rome, he, Roman culture knew that, that it was not common to adopt a child. And that seems weird in our day, because we would only adopt children. But in Paul's day, you didn't adopt children because you didn't know what they were going to become. In Paul's day, if somebody had a lot of money or a business and they didn't have any kids, they would adopt an adult who had proven themselves and proven their character over and over again to be their legal heir of everything they had. Adoption was intentional, and it was to pass along all the property and all the rights of the family doing the adopted. And Paul says that we are adopted as Sons. Now, again, we need to, to read the Bible for what the Bible says. Sometimes we, we want to say sons and daughters. This is one of those spots that I would caution anybody against doing so. Because in that day, if you were a daughter, you, didn't heir, you weren't the heir of anything. You were literally the heir of nothing. You only got property, you only got rights by marrying somebody who got property and rights through, through their own inheritance. So when Paul here says that we are all sons, adopted as sons, he's being serious. And we shouldn't just change these words. Dennis recently said at Community Group, we are all of us, men and women, the bride of Christ. Sometimes men, we have a little bit of difficulty with that phrasing. We are all of us, he goes on to say, men and women, the sons of God in this passage. So whether you're a man or you're a woman here today, if you are in Christ, you are as a son receiving a full inheritance of the kingdom of God, from God himself. In Christ, we are redeemed, we are adopted as God's sons. This is not the end of the good news. 
Because not only are we adopted, not only is this relationship uh, legal and firm, but look at verse 6. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Not only do we have a legal standing as God's children, but God sends the spirit of the son into our hearts so that we too can cry, Abba, Father. And this is important in Mark 14, 36, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's got the cross in front of him, and it's the only thing he can see, he says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the same words here that Jesus uses to cry out, Abba, Father, in his most desperate moment of need, that Paul says when the Spirit comes into us as the sons of God, we get to cry out to God too. This is a cry that comes from deep within. It is not just that we get to say, God, my Father. It's not just words that come out of our mouth. When the Spirit is uttering it from our hearts, it is because it is, first of all, utterly true. God is our Father. And two, because He is, we can trust Him. The closest equivalent that we have in the modern language is Daddy. And I think about my own kids, and I think about their crying to, to daddy when something happens, when life's not going well, when things hurt, when there's an injury. And it's the same moment, the same kind of thing that we all are meant to turn to God and cry out from the inner parts of our heart in trust and faith, daddy. And know that he is right there. That he is right there. I want to think you to think a bit on your prayer life, especially after you've sinned. And we all do it. We all have. When things start coming back together in your prayer life, when you've recovered from that moment and you're turning back to the Lord, when you do so, let me ask you a question. Do you turn to God as daddy or as master? Do you turn to him as a son, or do you turn to him as a slave? This is an important distinction, because we're told right here that as, as his heirs and as those who receive the spirit of adoption, the spirit comes into us, and we are led to be able to cry, Abba, Father, that we have become sons. We no longer need to go to God as a slave. We go to him as son. And you can go to him as daughter. Church, I, I just, I ask this question because I know for some of us, we have a real hard time seeing God in that, in that way. All we see is God as, as the master. But what we're told in this passage is that's our old life. That's our old life is to see God. 
from the perspective and from the eye of a slave. What we should do as Christians now is to see God through the eye of the sons and the daughters, to see him as father. Verse 7, hear this. See how verse 7 undoes verse 1. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 1 told us that if we're an heir, we're a child, then we're a slave. Verse 7 tells us that we're no longer slaves, but sons. And as sons, an heir through God. If you're in Christ, this is true for you. Whether you know it or not. Whether you live it or not. We come to God, our Father. We come to God, our Father, who loves us and receives us, who adopted us even while we were still sinners, even while we were still enemies, and he called us to himself. If you are in Christ, then you are an heir adopted the full privileges of the family of God. And I want you to hear that. Because too often we live in a reality of frustration. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been made lords of all under Christ. And we continue to act like children. Church, let us grow, thrive, accept that today is the day the fullness of God for the maturity we have in Christ. I mean, the reality is yesterday or the day before was that day too. But if you haven't gotten there yet, then today is that day. Today is that day. Church, let us be the sons of God. Full heirs in freedom and in life. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we would be your, your children in this place today. I pray, Lord God, that, that our hearts would, be tur would turn to you. Lord, we struggle so often to, to live in the fullness of what you've meant for us. But God, we confess that. We repent of, of that. And we turn to you, Lord. God, I do pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not yet been a son of God, who has not yet received the spirit of adoption, the ability to cry out, Abba, Father, not from their mouth alone, but from their heart, the innermost bits of themselves. Lord, I pray that today would be the day, the fullness of time for them. Lord, for the rest of us, for those who have been in you, God, I pray that you would work in us and draw us closer and deeper and further into what it means to be your son and to be your daughter, to be your child. Lord, for you to be our dad. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, as we love you. God, help us to love you more. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.